0: Welcome to the Hard Man Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. One of the main reasons that men stay away from church today is that church no longer teaches a doctrine of dominion. As a result, men have no grand sense of mission or purpose, and instead, Christianity is reduced to a Hallmark-style romance between you and Jesus. Something that most masculine men find utterly unappealing and unattractive. That's why they're flocking in droves away from the church, and the church is comprised mostly of women and effeminate men. Many of these men, disillusioned with the church, turn to the intellectual dark web, or any number of personalities from Jordan Peterson to Rollo Tomasi and Jack Donovan, or they turn to the manosphere, the red pill movement. And while these internet gurus offer Helpful advice and even practical skills for strengthening one's body on issues like building wealth, advancing your career, or being more aggressive among your peers. They help you to improve your relationship with women. They do all these things well, but they often fail to give men a clear sense of mission. The result is that men become chiseled, they become successful in their career, they become better with women, many become womanizers. But ultimately, They just become more skilled at navel-gazing, right? The self-obsession, the selfie mode of our generation. Many of these men have mastered their driving skills, to use a metaphor, but they still don't know what their destination is. What's the grand sweep? What's the mission and the aim of your life, the telos? Well, in this episode, we're going to explore the biblical doctrine of dominion which grounds a man in his God-ordained mission and answers the fundamental question, What is a man for? I want to begin today by taking a look at the book of Genesis, which is a book of origins. Now, by exploring the beginning of all things and why things were made, the book reveals also the purpose of all things including the purpose of man. This is where we're going to answer the question, what is man for? Well, man is told plainly in Genesis 128, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So right from the opening pages of scripture, man's mission is actually spelled out for us. Now, as we look at this passage, I want you to notice two things about man's core purpose in verse 28. Number one, man was made to be fruitful. Man was made to enjoy the pleasure of sex with his wife, but he was also in the same relationship made to procreate. He was made to have children and to fill the earth with these children. Men were made for families and children, right? This is part of your core identity. And it's a way of building a culture-shaping and world-taking army. This is one way to answer the question, what are men for? They're for fruitfulness. And number two, Genesis one twenty-eight tells us, man was made to take dominion. This is what the army of God's covenant-keeping sons is made to do. This is what man is raising an army for, is for dominion. Now, the Hebrew word means to assault. To bring into subjection by force or to subdue. That is to say that man was made to raise an army and take the world by force. He was to have lots of sex, enjoyable and pleasurable with his wife. And he was to make lots of children and bring the world under his rule. Now, as we also learn in Genesis 2.15, man's two primary roles by which he would take dominion were to work and to keep. In other words, man was made to be a warrior And a worker. He was made to take up the sword and the trowel and to conquer the world, both as a culture builder and as a leader of armies. You see, building cultures and perfecting agricultural practices, developing technologies to enhance his work, things like inventing plows and tractors and complex irrigation systems, establishing commerce and trade, and developing educational practices. Perfecting the arts, building cities, and perfecting the practice of politics. These are the things that a man was made to do. Now, if you think about it, it's a monumental task that would take generations and generations to fulfill. Now, when masculinity is brought under the banner of this dominion-taking work, it's exciting. It's totally absorbing, and it demands the best from men. But I want you to contrast that with what we find as really a central message of the church today. It's this. Jesus loves you and he wants to have a warm, romantic relationship with you that is basically eternal pillow talk after binge-watching the Hallmark Channel with your girlfriend. The end. Period. That's it. Go have another devotional time with deep spiritual intercourse with God. Now, in the church today, men are simply an obstacle to a feminized world of emotions, sentimental piety, and really suffocating niceness. It's not actually anything that's new. As 19th century author Sarah Hale once wrote, and I'm quoting now, the point of the church was, quote, to bring about the true Christian civilization. And the way this was done, she says, is that men must become more like women and the women more like angels. I want you to hear that one more time. The men must become more like women, and the women more like angels. End quote. That's the underlying aim in many churches today. We need to make the men more domesticated and more like women. We need our men to be neutered and docile. We need them to binge watch Tiger King instead of raising up against the tyranny that's happening. And as a result, what we get is men who are completely harmless. They're neutered, they have no sense of aggression in a positive sense, and they're utterly harmless. And so the American church, under the influence of feminization, has taken on a flavor of mushy romance novels. Instead of what it once was, it used to be a theologically rich, doctrinally robust, Calvinistic, patriarchal boot camp. For an army of dominion taking foot soldiers. Let me ask you, is that what you find in the church today? It is not. One Unitarian clergyman in eighteen fifty eight said this, and I find it quite interesting. He said quote The ancient world was emphatically masculine. The ancient world was emphatically masculine. Those are the Christian roots, and really that's the flavor of the world. Now he went on to say something else that under the new liberal feminist movement in the church, he said this, quote, Christianity had begun to proclaim the gospel of the ever feminine and showed the utter nothingness of masculine self-sufficiency. End quote. Right? The ancient world was utterly masculine. And a huge reason why is that men were raised on dominion theology. They were taught Genesis 1 and 2. This was part of the fabric of the church's teaching, and so men had a clear mission. No matter what your vocation, it was your job to raise a small army of Christ followers and to go and subdue the whole planet. It encompassed every area of life, from business to politics, from religion and philosophy to science and technology. You see, it's this doctrine of dominion that fills a man's lungs with potent air, and causes energy to surge through his nervous system. This is where he gets his fire and passion is from this dominion mandate, which we find in Genesis. Now we've looked at Genesis, but I want to examine one other passage that highlights the nature of dominion in the New Covenant era. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I want to take a look at a few of the greatest hits from Jeremiah 31. And these show how a man's work as warrior and worker are played out. And it's found in the basic structure of the covenant promises. It encompasses more than simply a romantic relationship with Jesus. It's more than about you and Jesus in your quiet time. So here are a few of the highlights from Jeremiah 31. Number one... God promises that, again, he will reward and cause man's work to be fruitful. That's verse 16. So that encompasses vocation. Number two, men will plant vineyards and be fruitful in the land. That's in verse 5. So it encompasses both land and vocation. Number three, God will rebuild the cities of the faithful, verse 4 and 38. So the discussion here is about cities, politics, and culture. Number four, God promises a hopeful future for you and for your children that you shall dwell in your own land. Verse 17. So God's promise relates to inheritance and lineage. Number five, God will put the law on the hearts of his people. Verse 33. God promises regenerate hearts. Number six, God will grant faithful pastors who feed God's people once again. Verse 14. One of the promises of the new covenant is for faithful pulpits. Number seven, and finally, God promises whole communities will be faithful to God. Verse 34, right? So it encompasses both communities and real physical places. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, what we learn is that the new covenant promises are about all of life. It's not just about you and your relationship with Jesus. Jesus. Right Again, they're about economies, politics, land, agriculture, shepherds in the church, inheritance. They're about generational legacies. They're about our children. They're about total dominion over all of life and all the earth. The new covenant promises aren't about the amazingly tantric devotional times that you're expected to have with God. Right? That's what we reduce everything to in the church today. That's not what the new covenant structure and promises are about. They're about a God who fills his people with the law and the spirit so that they can be warriors and workmen who conquer pagan empires and rebuild the city of God. Now, at the practical level, what does this mean for the church and in particular for men today? How will the church be different if we recover this sense of dominion theology? I'm going to lay out a few points First, it means that we need to recover a grand vision of dominion if we want to attract men and energize the church to fulfill its global mandate. You see, men were hardwired for dominion. That's the mission. And without this clear mission, men's fighting aggression, their vocational prowess, their sexual potency, all of that gets wasted on stupid and trivial things. That's how we end up as a generation of navel-gazers. We think masculinity means using my strength to beef up my body so I can take better selfies at the gym. That is not what masculinity is for, and the men who do this fail to understand their true God-given mission. On the other hand, with a clear mission, men will fight for right doctrine. They will labor to build an anti-fragile household. They will build armies along with their wife, the woman that God has given them in their youth. You see, here's a fundamental principle. Men are like arrows. They're weapons and they're dangerous. And the way that you get the best of men is that you aim them at the right target. You don't blunt the arrow. You don't cut it in half. You don't cut off the fletching. You sharpen them and you aim them at the right target. Men need a mission. Now, how would the church be different if... We actually taught this doctrine, which we don't. How would the church be different today? Well, first of all, the church would attract masculine men, right? All the men who left the church and said, well, forget that. I'm just going to go do work. I'm going to engage in business and politics, and I'm going to forget the church. I think you would start attracting these men to the church, right? Men are made to fight, and they're made to build, and they need a mission, right? And the church has not laid out that blueprint, so men are lost. They don't know what to do with their strengths. The other thing that would happen is feminists would be driven out, right? You bring real men into the church, the feminists would be driven out. Number two, it means that men need to deeply be inspired by their place in this epic battle for glory. That's what men want. That's why we watch Braveheart and we said, I want to fight, right? I want to battle. I want brothers to war alongside because men were made for battle. They're made to spar with their own men and then to ride out to war. Men are made to bleed for each other and spill the enemy's blood. You see, there's an epic battle for Middle Earth that's being waged, and men need to be called to fight in it. But as it is, men are languishing and listless because they are hardwired for combat, and yet they go to church and all they find is a soft toned book club. They're told to put on a sweater vest and to talk about their feelings. And then in the church we say, well, why don't the men want to participate? Because men were not hardwired for the church therapeutic. They were hardwired for the church militant. Men need to see that every time you tuck your toddler in and pray over them, it's because you're raising an army. Every time you go to work, it's part of a cosmic battle. Everything that you engage in on a daily basis is part of a bigger story, and our men need this story. It's the sense of mission that's lacking. Now, third, it means that we need to recover the biblical language of dominion warfare. Right? The church was once referred to as the church militant. That's all the saints currently on earth who are fighting for the cause of Christ. They're laboring in the spiritual warfare to which Christ has called us. That's how we used to refer to the church. But today, we refer to the church as the church therapeutic. At least that's what it should be called. Instead of the biblical language of warfare, you think of Ephesians 6 that Paul says, that's how we ought to think of the Christian life. Instead of what Paul told Timothy, be a good soldier, Timothy, fight the good fight. We don't talk like that in our churches anymore. Now, our churches are drowning in psychobabble and the speech of whiny therapists. Right, God described himself in Exodus as a man of war. We're told throughout the pages of Scripture, it is constant warfare. And yet today our churches prefer relational language. It's soft language. It's unoffensive. So here's what we need to do. We need to recover the biblical language of warfare and dominion. That's what men are hardwired for, and that's what they're going to respond to. And fourth, we need to recover a doctrine of vocation that values men's work as a vital part of the dominion battle for the cosmos. For over a century, the American church has told men they are worldly and workaholic just for investing their time and energy in the realm of business and politics. We've rebuilt the wall between sacred and secular work, so that, for example, serving as a Sunday school teacher is somehow holy and important work, but... Running a successful painting business is just a dirty, secular, albeit necessary, evil. Right? We need it to leverage money to pay bills and fund overseas mission work, but it's just viewed as a distraction. Right? We're denigrating men's work. Now, as it did during the Reformation, the church needs to recover a vibrant doctrine of vocation. We need to teach men that their work is a vital part of the dominion mandate, not some secular second place endeavor. Men especially need to see that the houses they paint in their local town, the buildings they erect in their community, the oil they change in their neighbor's cars, the classes they teach, all of this is a vital, godly, and necessary work, and it's part of the dominion taking mandate. It's part of your warfare. Instead of castigating our men for being diligent and successful in the world, the underlying assumption is that only Bible studies and mission trips really matter. What we need to do is help men see their work as a vital part of the dominion mandate. It's part of the larger battle for the cosmos. We began with the question in this episode, what are men for? And I want to end here. Men are made to be warriors and workmen. They're made to fight, to build, and to create. They are the small business owners and the entrepreneurs. They're the culture builders and the city rulers. Men are made to be physically strong and morally competent. Men are made for dominion. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. For more on the topic of masculinity and biblical sexuality, be sure to check out my website. Sign up for my newsletter at ericconn.com. That's E-R-I-C-C-O-N-N ncom You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. My handle on Twitter is all lowercase, E-R-I-C underscore C-O-N-N. Please send along your questions or feedback. Until next time, men... Stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.